1: Plus, every single borough order ships free right to your door. Right now get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at Borough.com slash Acast. This is the Guardian.
2: you can find a book which not only celebrates queer love but allows you to celebrate your own queer identity I think that can be incredibly powerful and the same is true for any form of representation which is why it's so important because it allows you to find pathways towards pride and self-acceptance. Hi I'm Zoya Patel I'm a writer
0: and editor and welcome to Book It In a show about the big ideas behind great books. In this episode, I'm talking to novelist Hannah Kent. Hannah's always been interested in the voices that didn't make it into the history books. Her most recent book, Devotion, is set in the 19th century in a pious religious community. And at its heart, Devotion is a queer love story. Although it's historical fiction, Hannah didn't want to repeat the narrative of shame attached to queer relationships throughout history. So she told the story of a full, unconditional and thrilling love between two women in a way that challenges the ways we represent the past. So you've written three novels and they're all set in the 19th century – so Burial Rights is in Iceland, The Good People was in um, Ireland and your latest devotion is in Prussia to begin with in the 1800s. When did you know you wanted to
2: write historical fiction? I never really thought I could even write a novel and it wasn't until I sort of found a story that completely consumed me, which was this account of Agnes Magnus Dottir, the last person to be executed in Iceland, that I just fell headlong into the research and into the narrative. And so it was really by accident rather than design. But it was the process of writing burial rites and, I guess, my introduction to the way in which research can not only inform historical fiction but also research as a source of creative inspiration that uh, then led me, to, I guess, to continue on the path. And so it's something, yeah, I think it's something that uh, was has been completely accidental but, you know, hugely rewarding. I really, really love it as a genre. Um, but it's also nice to be aware of its boundaries and perhaps to push back against them too.
0: But another common thread through your work is that you very much focus on the stories of women.
2: Why is Mm -hmm. that? Again, I don't think it's because I ever started out with a, you know, direct kind of question, you know, what sort of lives did women live or how have they been misrepresented in the historical records and the, the archives that we've inherited? I think it was quite an organic curiosity that stemmed perhaps more largely from an interest in what is generally absent in the historical records and an awareness too that came when I was researching burial rites that human history is very often written by a human hand, you know, of course it is. And so it it contains all the very human prejudices and um, ideologies. You know, history as we receive it is coloured completely by, I guess, a very subjective viewpoints. And so I realised very quickly that the sort of information I was looking for, namely the Particular details relating to the experiences of women, and more specifically, women of peasant classes. With you know, using that word with with quote unquote people of of lower classes, women of lower classes, women who were illiterate. Their stories, if they did enter historical records or narratives, were never you know they never had any kind of self representation, and very often their stories seemed to my modern eye misrepresented. And so, I think it became very quickly a, a specific. I guess, a pattern I noticed whenever I was researching that if I was looking to what wasn't in the record or what was misrepresented, very often women were somehow involved. They were often on the receiving end of that misrepresentation. And so I think my my interests kind of aligned in that regard. But it wasn't like I ever decided, you know, to sit down at my desk and and try to (laughs) resurrect women's lives particularly. It it just came about because, you know, we just don't have these received narratives. It's very hard to find out what many women's lives were like.
0: Um, Another pattern that is quite noticeable in your work is that you have chosen stories that have their origins overseas. Is that, again, something that has just happened organically?
2: I think so with burial rights. you know, it was never, again, me sitting down and deciding to write specifically about Iceland, although I do have a vested interest in that country. And I think a big part of what led me to write that story was not only interest in these historical events and the the misrepresentation of the woman at the centre of them, but also, you know, homesickness. I lived in Iceland for a year when I was 17, and my experiences there had a massive impact on on the person that I have become one way of returning to it in my mind was to try and distill all its ineffable qualities into prose. And then when it came to the good people, again, I already had a a kind of affinity with Ireland. I grew up playing Irish instruments. I was in an Irish folk band for most of my youth. Um, So it felt, again, like a familiar place. But I think what also informed me choosing these foreign settings was that I loved leaning into my wonder of a place and... That sort of the, the novelty that you feel when you're an outsider and you suddenly get to experience an entirely different landscape, both cultural and physical, and then you are you know a, you are like a child again. You know you notice things that you otherwise wouldn't because you're an outsider. And I felt like that sense of wonder and awe and that novelty really fed into my ability to perhaps capture things in a way that hopefully hadn't you know wasn't tried or contrived or or cliched. Um, so, yeah, I think after doing it for two books, I was a little bit nervous to return to a landscape, which was a little bit more familiar as is, you know, as we find in devotion.
0: So that actually was going to be my next question for you, Hannah, is this is the first time that you've written about Australia. So why did you choose to do that for this story?
2: I knew with this book uh, that I wanted to do a few things differently. Um, I knew that I wanted to write about something that you know, for want of a better better word, wasn't as bleak as my other books. Um, I didn't want to, for instance, take another criminal woman from history and sort of try to subvert the narrative. I wanted to move away from murder. It's, you know, it can be a quite a a negative space to be in for so many years. Um, So I knew I wanted to move into something a little bit more uplifting or celebratory. And I also, when when The Good People was released, I was very interested in the landscape of the Barossa in the South Australia, which, of course, is very famous for its wine. Um, there was an amazing essay Tourism ad that came out about the Barossa, which was hugely evocative to the soundtrack of Nick Cave's Red Right Hand. And it was one of these sort of ads that I just I kept on looking up to watch. And I knew from my sort of weird obsession with this ad of all things that there was something there that I wanted to try and bring into my writing. And also, I grew up on Paramount Country in the Adelaide Hills, um, not so far away from the Barossa, and I mean this landscape and has had a huge impact on me and, and who, who I am as a person. And I started to feel that after two books set overseas, maybe it was time for me to see if I could write about this place which I love so much. But I was also very concerned that my familiarity with the with the Australian landscape would prevent me from writing about it in the new ways. You know, it, it, how would I access that? the wonder that I felt as an outsider in Iceland and Ireland when I was writing about my home country. Um, so that I ended up talking that up to a new challenge, but it was actually something that I ended up really enjoying about the writing process with, with this novel, just leaning instead into my deep love and familiarity with it. So it felt good, but it was something that, you know, I kind of went back and forth with uh, for a long time because I didn't know if there was a story or a time in Australia's colonial history that I wanted to write about. You know, it's an incredibly complicated thing. I was never going to, for instance, take up the perspective or voice of an Indigenous or First Nations character because I'm not Indigenous and that's not my space to appropriate, It's not my culture to appropriate. That's not my space to take up as a writer. So the alternative for me was going was always going to be writing from the perspective of a, a settler, you know, a colonizer. And whenever you're writing historical fiction, you always have to kind of you're hemmed in by the by, you know, the the boundaries and the perimeters of someone's, you know, of an of an accurate sort of ideology um, of an ideology that was upheld during those times. So I thought, well, what's left to me? Do I write from the perspective of a of a settler with all the racism and, you know, things that I, you know, I, how do I even do that? Do I even want to do that? Of course not. So I guess it took me, I was sitting on the idea of writing a story in Australia for a long time until I discovered a way in and a story that I felt would be worth the telling.
0: Well, let's dive into that then and take a closer look at Devotion so it's about two young women who travel from the Prussian village of Kay to Australia to escape religious persecution. Um, so at the start of the novel, what do we learn about Hannah?
2: So Hanna is the narrator of this book. It's told in first person and at the beginning of the book she is a young girl, she's in her early teens, and she is someone who is on sort of being on the brink of womanhood is finally realising that the freedoms she experienced as a child uh, are are no longer hers to enjoy. She is the daughter of an old Lutheran elder. Um, Her family and the congregation and community she lives in have been persecuted by King uh, Frederick William III, who uh, has... Created a union church to unify all the Protestant churches within Prussia. And of course, many elders and congregations are against it because there's been liturgical changes. There's a new service book, they don't agree with it. And over the years, so throughout Hannah's lifetime, her family and her community have been increasingly persecuted for their insistence on the old ways, hence why they're called old Lutherans. So Hannah, on one hand, belongs to this very pious, very strict community. Her father is essentially obsessed with God. (laughs) He has a very black and white way of seeing the world. Her mother embodies all the virtues upheld uh, by this community, Those set aside for women. She's a dutiful wife. She's a mother. She's also very withholding. And Hannah feels herself to be someone who doesn't quite fit in with the congregation or with her family and this is largely because she experiences the divine in ways outside of the church. Uh, When the book opens the church has gone into the forest to hold secret services and Hannah loves this because she sort of possesses a kind of synesthesia where she feels that she, nature speaks to her. Her nature sings to her, trees sing to her. She feels part of nature in a way that isn't necessarily shared or understood by her peers, particularly the other young women in the village. And she also feels that there is something about her which which makes her different. She finds a lot of the things that her peers come to easily, ways of speaking to her elders, ways to, you know, um, just even do domestic chores, she finds very difficult. She would much rather be out in the world, out in the landscape, sort of... um, Communing with it, I guess, and it isn't until the arrival of uh, a new family, who her again are old Lutherans and have been persecuted by by the the king and his officials, who arrive in K, the small village, that she really finds an equal and someone who recognizes her difference but accepts her totally. And this is Taya, and so Taya and Hannah establish a very strong immediate friendship. Um, that continues even as the congregation starts to look for possibilities um, for freedom, namely emigration. Yeah, there's a lot to
0: relate to in Hana and Taya. Um, as a you know woman reading this book, it's that universality, I guess, of coming of age that really comes across. You've touched on this a little bit, but how would you describe the relationship between Hana and Taya in the first half of the book?
2: I was really interested, when I made the decision that this, the relationship between my two main characters would be more than friendship, that it would be, you know, love, uh, romantic love. I was curious to see whether or not I could essentially portray two young girls or two young women who have these feelings who don't necessarily recognise them immediately but come to over time. And I was looking at, I was thinking about the things that would make this love so meaningful, would make this particular friendship and relationship so meaningful to these girls that I ended up uh, spending a lot of time thinking about what it is to love someone unconditionally. And I think that's what these two women have for one another. They love the other in, in their totality and their complexities and their flaws. And, I mean, these are two women who live in a community which is always striving to be more, more pious, closer to God, to do better. And I think too, both girls possess a kind of, for want of a better word, a kind of essential relationship to the outside world. But yeah, really, I just wanted to look at the ways in which love can be profoundly meaningful when you feel that you don't have to earn it. And I think that's what these two women give each other.
0: Hi, it's Zoya here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Book It In with Hannah Kent. In the second half of our conversation, we explore how she celebrated Hannah and Taya's love story, all while Hannah's relationship with her partner was being questioned by Australians in the same-sex marriage survey. Just before we jump back in, I want to remind you to follow and subscribe to Book It In on your podcast app. This means you'll get all our episodes when they come out. One thing that did strike me about the book is that unlike your other novels, you're looking at characters who are teenagers who are kind of coming of age. Why did you want to write about teenage women for this novel?
2: I'm not sure. I don't think I actually spent that much time thinking about an age. It just felt very natural. And I think with this book, I mean, it's, it's much more personal. I think than my others, um, I, in that there are elements of myself and my own experiences, I think, in Hannah's. And I did when I started writing, I found myself thinking about my own feelings of inadequacy as a, as a young woman and my confusion and my longing to be accepted, but also my unwillingness to give up the things that I knew made me different, but also that I liked about myself. And so the voices really arrived quite naturally. I also had, I mean, the American writer, Ron Rash, I remember I interviewed him once and he said that every short story, every novel of his begins with a vision. It's like he gets a, a tableau and he just needs to focus on what he can see and then the vision broadens and he understands the narrative behind it. And I had something similar with devotion. Right from the start I had this image of a of a young woman with very pale blonde hair in a pastoral setting and she was being observed by someone who was completely devoted to her, who loved her. And I understand the person watching her to also be another woman. And I didn't know whether, at that stage, I didn't know whether they would be friends or lovers or whatever, but that, I think, she was she was young in this image and I think that informed my decision to include those, I guess, that age. But also, I mean, it's such an interesting time and I think particularly for queer people adolescence and the teen years can be, you know, a time of turmoil and I was interested in exploring that. And it sounds like love, you always knew
0: that this was going to be a love story from the very beginning and you have said in other interviews that devotion is a modern queer love story or that was your goal, Um, Mm. but it is set in the 19th century. So what was modern about the way that you told Hannah and Taya's story?
2: I wanted to write a modern queer love story in the sense that I didn't want to write about these two women um, being ashamed or being shamed. I didn't want them, I didn't, despite the historical context of the times and what was permissible, despite the pious congregation that they lived in, you know, this is a congregation who once threw a bride out of her own wedding for wearing the wrong colour wedding dress. Despite all of this, I knew that I wanted to write a love story that elevated queer love, that Celebrate a queer love. I wanted a book of queer joy in so many ways that never once required the characters to deny themselves and to deny their own feelings or for them to have to flee, to have to remove themselves from their oppressive society and sort of live apart um, or where they were punished. I didn't want to write a, uh, a novel of of punishment or of shame and there are so many books out there which are like that and they are necessary because they tell it how it was and that is true of books written at the time it is true of historical narratives written by contemporary authors such as Sarah Waters I mean she's written some fantastic Queer romances, which are just kind of these amazing lesbian romps like Dipping the Velvet and Fingersmith, they're quite joyous but they also focus on people who are in many ways kind of removed and she has herself has said that she had to kind of invent or or she acknowledges a a lesbian presence which where none was recorded. I, I knew I wanted to do something different in this book because really I just wanted to show... The divine, which exists in this relationship, and so it was really difficult to try and find out a way in which I could do this. And I think that's why I decided that there needed there's something needed to happen in the novel, which completely dislocated the narrator and made her be able to speak from a sort of a space of timelessness. Uh, You know, it could remove her from the historical context, and that is the reason why the events in the middle of the book happen. It was the only way I felt that I could make my narrator completely aware about her deep romantic love for Taya. Um, it was the only way that I could have her, I guess, act on that love without fear of, of being found out or of being removed or punished. It was really, it was quite a challenge, but I, I knew that, that that was sort of almost something that I had stuck on my computer as I was writing. I was just like, no shame. I don't want any shame in this book. I feel like the LGBTQIA plus community has experienced so much shame already. There's so many narratives that exist about it. What we need is a celebration of queer joy. We need a, we need, you know, a divine elevated queer love. And that was really what I was hoping to achieve by, I guess, taking the creative risks that I did in this book.
0: Okay. So I want to dive right into talking about these creative risks, but I should probably put out a quick spoiler alert. For those of you who haven't yet read the book, you might want to stop listening now or skip ahead two minutes. Okay, so now that the spoiler alert's out of the way, about halfway through Devotion, Hannah dies on her boat journey to Australia and becomes a ghost. So the second half of the book is told from Hannah's perspective as a ghost, following and watching Taya build a new life in South Australia. So how did you go about switching from writing a more traditional historical story to this kind of magic realism in the second half of the book?
2: I tried writing, I guess, what you would might you know, deem a more realistic historical novel where I maintained the historical context. It was much more in the style of my previous books and I would just write scenes. It was like improv- the equivalent of actors improvising. I would write scenes between my two characters at various stages of their of their life and the events I knew were going to occur. And it was impossible. It was impossible to avoid shame. It was impossible to avoid secrecy. And that was when I decided, no, I, you know, I need to do what I need to do. I need to, you know, essentially apply a modern, I need to give one of my characters a modern understanding and a modern joy in in her queerness and in her, in her love. And then once I did move off into something which is much more, I guess, aligned with magical realism or speculative fiction, suddenly there were all these creative possibilities. I mean, I wrote my previous two novels with my hands kind of completely bound to known facts and even when there were very obvious kind of when there was very obvious misinformation in the historical record I would use a more broad research to inform I guess the version that I chose to tell with this book once I decided no I'm breaking rank I'm gonna I'm gonna play with the genre a little bit I realized that there were all these other things that I could do and that having freed my character from the historical confines that she was previous in I could free her in other ways and I could play with this idea of, of the spirit world and the supernatural and the natural landscape and the ways in which we might be all more deeply connected than we realise, the ways in which we not only might engage with the natural world but truly be one with it. But that was just, you know, a joyous thing to be able to do as a writer. I'd never done anything like that before. And it was a lot of fun. It was really wonderful to be able to give, you know, a, a longer leash to to my imagination, and to play with, you know, things on a symbolic level. You know, what better way to comment on the invisible, but you know, certain existence of queer relationships and queer people throughout history than essentially disappearing one, you know, within within the book? You can't write about these stories of
0: of queer love um, and queer identity without also acknowledging the current contemporary context um, of those Mm. conversations. So what was going on in Australia while you were
2: writing this book? Well, my entire decision to move from celebrating friendship between two women to making them fall in love with each other came about through my anger during 2017, which was the year of the same-sex plebiscite here in Australia. And, I mean, that was a time in my own life which was hugely exciting um, I was with my girlfriend at the time, I was pregnant with my first child, we were, you know, very deliberately creating a future for ourselves, creating a family for ourselves and then in the post box we received these pamphlets of hatred and, you know, as much as you do inevitably develop resilience and this ability to sort of assure yourself that these, these things are not correct about you, it, you know, it... God, it whittles away at you in ways that you don't expect. And I know that I wasn't the only queer person. I know many friends who felt that they, that, you know, who see themselves as being very staunch, very solid in their self-acceptance, who nevertheless were impacted by the sort of the hate campaign and the no campaign. Um, and so it was really all of this going around that made me think, you know, okay, I'm writing about absences in history. I'm trying to elevate the importance of friendship between women within this particular historical context of Prussian immigrants. And I thought, is that, is that the best I can do? I mean, what sort of book do I want to read? The book is dedicated to
0: your partner, Heidi. Um, and I read that she proposed to you the day of the same sex marriage survey, which is this kind of beautiful full circle. What does the yeah, book mean did. to both of you um, in
2: your relationship? Well, it's been a curious book to write because I mean, before I even really had time to write it, I mean, I had two, we had, our two children during the writing of this book. Um, so for a long time, I just did not have the time or the or the energy or uh, to sit down at the desk and write. So we would take our children on these, you know, huge pram walks throughout the hills and talk about the book and talk about you know, I would just basically prattle away. And I wrote a lot of it, essentially just talking out loud to her. And so it always felt like a very personal story that we shared. And I remember when my publisher accepted the manuscript that Heidi had a moment where she was like, oh, these Hunter and Tia aren't just for us anymore. (laughs) They've got to go out into the world. Um, So it was special. Yeah, we really, I felt that we had, both of us had a deep investment um, in their relationship and in the the ways in which they would be portrayed. And and Heidi, normally I don't share my work with anyone when I write. I tend to write a lot of drafts and I don't really like to show people until I feel, you know, that it's ready for a reader. But Heidi read stuff from day one and that her input and her, I guess, the things that she loved really influenced the way that the story went. So, yeah, she's she's everywhere in this book. Your book does also have the voices of another
0: group that have been marginalised both in the past and in the present. Can you tell us a bit about the local First Nations people in devotion? Um, one half of the story takes place in colonial Australia.
2: So I was. this was a big part of, I guess, my, my hesitancy surrounding whether or not to write, to even write, set a book in Australia during this time was, as I said earlier, I didn't want to write this, you know, an awful kind of Quote, settler narrative, or I just, it didn't interest me. There wasn't anything there for me, and I didn't think it was worth anyone else's time either. Um, So it was really the point where I decided that I was essentially going to have that massive shift in the middle of the book that I was going to rip one of my characters outside of the, the limitations of her time, where she can essentially appropriate a much more under, modern understanding not only of queer love but also of colonization. That was the point where I thought, well this is this is how I negotiate that. There was still a lot of research that went into this book. And I spent a great deal of time reading about the the interactions between these Prussian immigrants who arrived in the in the 1830s and 40s. And the the Paramount people who were starting to be displaced and had obviously already been suffering under the many consequences of colonization, um, whether that was outright hostility and violence, or you know the, the theft of resources and land, and the spreading of smallpox and other diseases, which decimated um, which decimated these communities. I. I was, uh, so I spent a lot of time reading about these things, um, but also about the, I read, encountered many stories about quite friendly and if if perhaps a little cautious or wary, but essentially friendly relationships that were formed between the German or the Prussian women and the Paramount women in, in the Adelaide Hills on Paramount country. And I wanted to honour that because it was documented, but at the same time I was aware that it was documented by colonisers. So it was important for me to illustrate I guess, a multitude of things. Um, the fact that these relationships did help, that the Paramount people essentially saved a lot of these German communities from starvation when they first arrived and were living off the leftover ship's rations and still uh, struggling through scurvy and so on. And then, you know, five years later, the fact that these same people were being harassed um, because they were taking up the same resources that they had so generously shared with the arrival of the, of the Germans. So I wanted to show, I guess, the change in attitude, which seems to have occurred over time, and I based a lot of that on letters and, and private histories which were documented. But I also wanted to, I guess, use what I was doing in terms of the speculative fiction um, elements to, sh- to indicate the different ways of being devoted and of celebrating the divine. So that was one of the reasons why I also wanted to show the spiritual connection to country that the Paramang people had and also their ability to look at the world differently to the Prussians. And, I mean, the fact that they continually perceive and are aware of Hana's presence irrespective of what happens that was something that came about too through conversations I had with a a wonderful local elder elder Mandy Brown who read some of my drafted material and we had some great conversations Um, and she was very very generously shared her her perspective and questioned me about the sorts of things that I wanted to achieve in this book and so a lot of that then I guess coloured the the ways in which I portrayed the paramank and their relationship to the Germans, but it's such a hard thing, right? And I'm, you know, I sort of had to come to a point where I thought, well, if I've messed this up, if I've if I've offended anyone, or if I've done this in the wrong way, then I stand by, you know, my my error, and hopefully it'll be an opportunity to learn and, and to move forward. But it's um, yeah, it's it was a really tricky thing for me to negotiate, and I think I felt really felt towards the end that the only way that I could, I guess, apply a modern understanding of the consequences of colonisation and their impact on the Paramang people was to do what I did to Hana. Yeah, I think you've
0: really touched on the complexity of doing justice to different stories, especially stories that, you know, connect with marginalised experiences. But I think there's also something interesting there about what responsibility there is, particularly if you're writing historical fiction, to Kind of address those issues, particularly in an Australian context or in another post-colonial kind of context. Did you did you feel responsibility?
2: Yeah, I do. I always feel responsibility when I write because even though it's fiction, and I know there are many writers who feel that you can write whatever you like, I, I do feel an ethical responsibility for a certain kind of accuracy in my representation of the past. And I think that's because so often. I'm aware of, this, of the power of misrepresentation, whether that be, you know, historical documents or just, you know, the written any form of the written word, irrespective of whether or not it's fiction or nonfiction. I think carries power and can influence the way that people think or the way that they see the world. And so, I do feel a sense of responsibility to ensure that I am respectful of cultures, whether that be the the folkloric cultures represented in The Good People. Or the paramount cultural practices represented in devotion, you got to you got to get some things right. I don't think you can just make crap up. You know, um, you're still writing about the dead, and you're writing about ongoing cultures, um, present day cultures. I think yeah, I think you have to do your homework. Sometimes I think that I write the stories I do because I have this sense of responsibility. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that I am able to affect that much change, but. I think that it's, I can't get away from the fact that I feel it and I think I always will. Thank you so much, Hannah, for being so generous
0: in this conversation. I do have one last question. What books have you been reading? Anything that you would recommend
2: to our listeners? Well, oh, I recently revisited a wonderful queer book, which actually I haven't mentioned yet, um, which is Kissing the Witch by Emma Donahue. So Emma Donahue is very well known, as many people might be familiar with her historical novels, such as The Wonder or The Pull of the Stars, her recent one, or Room, uh, which was an amazing book. But one of her, I really love her earlier work too, and one of these is a collection of short stories called Kissing the Witch, where she Queers, a whole bunch of fairy tales and links them together. And, you know, speaking of queer joy, it's such a wonderfully gay, joyous interpretation of, I guess, our inherited folkloric, you know, mythologized history, um, all these fables and, and fairy tales. And I remember Reading it as a as a young queer person and just delighting in them, um, so yeah, I would I was re- recently went back to it and read them again, and they're just as wonderful this time around And I think probably it's not as well known as her other books, so yeah, I've I've really been enjoying, *Kissing the Witch*, and I would recommend other people read it too. Hannah Kent is the author of *Devotion*, published by
0: Picador Australia. This episode was produced by Alison Chan, Jane Lee. Joey Watson and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. I'm Zoya Patel. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your podcast app. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading.